Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hey, my name is Ryan Mara Evans, and I'm a student farm manager at the Yale Sustainable Food Project. Joining us in the studio is Josh Evans. Josh graduated from Yale in 2012 and is currently lead researcher and project manager at the Nordic Food Lab. The Nordic Food Lab, founded by chef Rene Redzepi of Noma, investigates food by diversity and deliciousness by combining scientific, cultural, and culinary techniques from around the world. Josh's current research project is titled Deliciousness as an Argument for Entomophagy. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm um, good. So, great. I guess we could, we could start off by, by two things. Could you define entomophagy and deliciousness for me, or at least unpack those two <laughs> very heavy words? Definitely. It's good to be back in a place where the word unpack is used liber- uh, liberally and uh, without irony. Um, uh, entomophagy is easy to unpack. It literally means uh, the eating of insects. I think insects, in that sense, actually is a harder word to unpack because it doesn't refer neatly to a taxonomic group. We can talk about like terrestrial arthropods, but that also includes like other things that we don't consider insects. And then some things that we do consider insects are also not in that uh, in that word. So this is sort of, you know, taxonomic onanism, but nonetheless is, is gotcha. necessary to the discussion. But entomophagy is eating insects and deliciousness, uh, of course, is a little more... Um, complicated, and it's it's sort of a favorite word of Rene, um, and subsequently has become sort of part of our discourse at Nordic Food Lab, uh, and increasingly in a lot of the work that we do, we use it both unironically and also sort of with a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because we recognize that even just the word itself sort of sounds silly, it sounds like a, a word that a child would use, um, but I think the main issue that we run into is that it has this ring of a universalizing principle in a certain way, that it's, um, that it's sort of a discoverable, discrete quality that foods can either have or not have. And that's not what we mean at all. Um, it very much has to do with acknowledging the subjectivity of taste, acknowledging how taste can be so diverse depending on cultural background, depending on time and place and history, um, and on upbringing, and on genetic aversion, and all of these sorts of factors go into the experience of something being delicious. And that's what we mean. We use deliciousness as a shorthand for that, that embodied sense that only happens in, uh, for an individual, essentially. And it's, it's the sort of thing where, you know, we, we can try and come up with like a, a nifty um, abstract definition of it but actually it's the sort of thing where we can say it and everyone knows what that everyone has a relationship with that experience even though the experience for different people is different we can use it in a common way like saying beauty for example Mm. it's not really an interesting question to try and define beauty for me at least but it's a useful concept because we all have an intuitive understanding of what it entails Um, because it's actually an embodied thing it comes down to being this this, this visceral thing that exists in all of us um, when we experience it in like a bodily way. So I hope that answers your question. Partially, yeah. I guess the, the next question that follows up from that is, how do you as a researcher, as a field researcher, approach the study as something as subjective and as culturally determined as deliciousness? Do you find any barriers to communication when, say, you're going to Peru or sub-Saharan Africa to explore right the edib- edib- edibility of insects well in in general 
it's a principle that we use. It's an idea that we use at the lab to try and guide our research. We say that we are pursuing deliciousness or investigating deliciousness. And when we say that, what we mean is that we, uh, we're actually acknowledging the very subjective nature of what, of what we do. The team that we have at the lab is very small and we all come from very different um, backgrounds, different disciplinary backgrounds and professional backgrounds, but also cultural backgrounds. Um, and so we all have a very different personal understanding of what that delicious experience constitutes uh, and is constituted by. But that actually is central to our process because what it means is that we can take a raw material. It can be an insect. It can be an algae. It can be uh, um, a fungus. It can be anything. And we all interact with it in a different way. And what we try and do is use actually use that diversity as a way of trying to explore all, all the different potential applications that that ingredient can have. And also to try and see... Like some things are very immediately delicious to a lot of people uh, across cultures. And this partly has to do with um, evolution and genetics, of course, but also has to do with there's just some things that, that sort of have a certain function in many cuisines, like different fats, for example, um, or salt, or um, sweetness, of course, is talked about a lot. There's a lot of interesting research into the genetic uh, foundation for that. But that's not to say that they're inherently delicious. It's just to say that they're sort of more conventionally accepted as something that gives rise to this experience. But what's more interesting to us are all of the things that aren't immediately delicious, that don't immediately engender this, this feeling, but that have a lot of latent potential for it. And those are the underutilized, neglected raw materials that are all around us all the time that we forget about or that we have forgotten, that we're trying to delve back into and try and find, try and bring that sort of potential for delicious experience to the fore. And actually having all of these different backgrounds enables, enables us to do that better, I would argue. Um, does that answer your original question? Maybe yeah. I went on a tangent. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely does. And it, it builds into a larger question that I have is, what role do you see the Nordic Food Lab in creating a new vocabulary for either forgotten culinary traditions or to describe the latent delicious qualities of certain raw materials or the exploration of new culinary frontiers? It's a really good question. Um, and we struggle with this a lot, actually, at the lab because sometimes, sometimes we take inspiration from a really established, very old technique. Often, often we do that, actually. And in that case, it's quite easy to name the thing that comes out of that experiment. Um, if it ends up bearing quite a resemblance to the original thing, like garum, for example, is a good example where we you know, started getting into um, salt-rich fermentation techniques in pursuit of umami taste a few years ago, probably 2009 or 2010. Um, and that was very easily sort of translatable because the techniques are very diverse, but um, most of the basic principles that you take fish, and often it's the guts, sometimes with some of the heads and bones, so what we would consider sort of the waste products of gutting a fish, and you add salt, which prevents the growth of unwanted microbes and allows the sort of the lactic acid bacteria, which are already in the guts of these fish, to flourish. And then sometimes you can add other sources of exogenous enzymes, so 
we use koji a lot, which is the Japanese term for a whole family of different grain-based um, fermentation uh, substrates in East Asia, which many of which use a mold called Aspergillus oryzae, and that produces a lot of enzymes which sort of speed up that fermentation and cause it to be broken down even more quickly and also contribute a lot of other secondary metabolites and things that, that it contribute to aroma. So when we make a fish sauce using that technique, it's quite easy for us to call it garum, even though it's not going to be the same garum that ancient Romans ate, it has a similarity. It's sort of is situated within that tradition. It's similar to, you know, nowadays in Italy, in I think, I think it's around Napoli, I can't remember, you can find colatura, which is like a sort of modern day equivalent of fish sauce. And of course, in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia has thousands of different varieties uh, of fermented fish products. So we see making fish sauce as sort of situated within those trajectories in history, but also, of course, taking it in a new direction, adding a new branch to the tree. Other things, though, become more difficult to name if we are sort of taking from different techniques and sort of hybridizing them, or we sort of make something by accident and it ends up being delicious or it ends up having delicious potential that we can identify that we want to take further. So... um there's loads of examples. I mean, one of the classic things now that is now has been used on the on the, the menu at the restaurant a lot, and the technique is you know lots of other people are picking up on it and taking it in their own directions, and it's further diversifying is um, is making miso, making making miso and soy sauce, which are sort of bound up in the same set of techniques, even though by by this point they they definitely have their own established traditions, and you know understanding the functional components of miso. In Japan, in this case, um, I mean, there is diversity here also, but most of them involve soybeans as a protein source and then koji grown on rice and salt. And you mix those together and uh, you let it ferment for some time and then it turns into this very umami-rich paste. So taking that technique and applying it to raw materials that we have in the Nordic region, so using you know, yellow peas or other heirloom varieties of peas and beans, um, land, old land race varietals from Sweden, for example, and growing koji mold on barley or buckwheat or rye um, and then adding salt, the technique, the sort of, um, from a functional point of view, is, is the same, but the flavor profile is very, very different. Once you go beyond the umami taste, all of the flavor is something utterly different. So do we call that miso? Well, you could, but we call it piso when we make it with yellow peas, which is sort of a convenient play on words. But you rarely have that convenient play on words. So what do you do when you don't have that? And that's, that's sort of something we sort of have to figure out on a case-by-case -case basis. And I could tell you loads of stories about all the different ways that we try and do that. But that, that sort of is an example of sometimes we can, we can take that term directly. We feel it has a certain fidelity that... that allows it to be situated sometimes we don't feel that's the case so we or like a a convenient joke prevent presents itself or we sort of have a stroke of inspiration to call it something completely else and then we do that it sort of varies depending on it it's excellent so i i think part of the nordic food lab and you can correct me if i'm wrong part of the mission is to challenge the cultural appropriateness of some like taboo ingredients, whether it's molds, seaweeds, bugs. But I feel also as if that's 
directed more towards like chef culture, right? This kind of like yeah. elite chef culture. Sure. To what extent do you see the philosophies or techniques or plays on words or challenges that you're doing in the Nordic Food Lab being employed in, you know, the kitchen of a home chef or on a more like global accessible scale, if at all? I think there's loads of potential. Um, and of course, as you say, we are born out of the restaurant world. We will always have sort of one foot in that world. And one of our priorities is working with cooks and with chefs. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's only taking place in restaurants. And part of our method is actually to deliberately, um, for example, deliberately being lo-fi, um, deliberately trying to build and design um, kitchen equipment ourselves so that those techniques can be reproduced more easily by cooks who are cooking in a four meter square kitchen or people at home who are have a little bit of interest uh, and can find these materials readily. So for example, when, when we're making a lot of these, uh, these fermented sauces, they have to be incubated at 40 degrees Celsius for at least the first six weeks, I would say, until until the microbial ecology stabilizes a bit and their pH is low enough. Um, and that's something that you can buy, you know, uh, incubation chamber for thousands of euro f for, or you can make one yourself by taking a, um, we call them thermal boxes. They're like insulated, uh, dense, some sort of plastic box that you use in catering or restaurants to keep something really warm or cold for a long time that seals really well and then you go to the hardware store and get some thermocouple wire which is like really simple wire that you put under your bathroom floor to heat it um, which you can buy almost anywhere and you can buy a really simple simple thermostat for like i don't know 10 20 euro um and with those, and that comes with a, a temperature probe. And with those three pieces of equipment, you can assemble them and create a really simple uh, negative feedback thermostat, which allows you to hold things at 40 degrees Celsius for a really long time. And because it's in this insulated box, it's very, actually, it's very efficient. Um, so, and that's something that if you have a little, even like the slightest modicum of interest and motivation you can do at home. And so that's the sort of knowledge that we're trying to share. It's not just about making fancy dishes for people who can go to Noma. We don't make dishes for Noma. They have their own test kitchen where they do that. We're interested in sharing an attitude, sharing an approach to food, which sometimes comes, sometimes we try and achieve that by developing dishes um, where we share those recipes on our, on our website. But also often that comes through other means, sharing the recipe for building a piece of equipment like this or sharing the recipe for um, a certain technique that you can apply to a lot of different substrates or sharing some knowledge about foraging or sustainable foraging guidelines. Or that's All of this sort of knowledge is the sort of knowledge that has much wider applicability outside of uh, fine dining, actually, I think. All right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it answers, I guess, one component of my question as far as addressing the, the hardware of the kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. The hardware of a professional kitchen and how a home chef may be able to build their own. Could you talk a little bit more about how a home chefs or a regular chef may, you know, engage with biodiverse local ingredients and how you can guide or mentor people through the Nordic Food Lab who maybe living in the United States or 
Brazil. Um, totally. And to what extent does that philosophy kind of guide how you reach out to those people? Mm. Um, I think that's where it comes back to the attitude, actually. The, the way of trying to interact with your edible surroundings. I mean, we're called Nordic Food Lab, but the type of work that we try and do can be undertaken anywhere in the world by lots of different people. And it is increasingly being done by lots of other people. This, this sense of trying to look at what's immediately around you and say, can I eat this? And after that, can I make this tasty? And often those questions can actually be bound up in each other. Um, a lot of the time we think about something having to be edible in that it, it won't kill you or something before it, it can be delicious before it can bring you pleasure or joy or surprise. But so often, so many of the things that are around us that won't kill us, that don't, re that, and of course toxicity is a matter of dosage too, but things that don't even have that potential, we don't consider edible for a variety of other reasons, which have to do with history and culture. So if we actually start with the question of, can this taste good? That can lead us to things that we wouldn't have considered food otherwise. Insects, of, of course, are a case in point. So what this means for people, you know, who, who do want to engage more with edible biodiversity and do want to sort of try and map this connection between expanding our taste and expanding the foods in our diet and as a result trying to develop a more ecologically resilient food system, which actually is the foundation of sustainability when we're talking about sustainability. Uh, it's much more to do, I think, with resilience and adaptability than it has to do with, you know, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions only or buying an electric car only. Um, it's a deeper thing. It has to do with an attitude. And so that's the try and that's the attitude that we try and facilitate the development of by offering these sort of concrete tidbits of information, um, whether it's to do with, you know, a fermentation technique you can use to use uh something that would otherwise be considered a waste product or it's to do with saying, hey, this is a whole family of plants that grows wild that, that doesn't, uh, you know, that has these particular qualities that you can use in the kitchen. And maybe in Northern Europe, we have these species. Uh, but in, in America, there are other species that are sort of in the same family that are similar. You can use them in this way. Uh, that's the sort of knowledge that we're interested in sharing. Right. So... You met Rene Redzepi, correct, as an undergraduate student at Yale. What about the Nordic Food Lab attracted you to it as a student, as an undergraduate student? And how has that attraction either evolved or changed or, you know, altered itself since then? Well, I think in the beginning, I, I was drawn to it because it was... It was so playful, actually. Um, when I first started following the blog, um, they really didn't post that much. They would post sort of small, tantalizing tidbits um, saying, you know, like a few sentences on, oh, we're, we're working on kombucha or we're working on this seaweed and we're making ice cream with it. And sometimes they would post a recipe and it was always very sort of, laconically described and that was really exciting to me because I could sense that there's so much more happening there that wasn't being shared and that's that sort of was bound up in my impulse to go there because I'm not a trained chef um, and I studied you know I was a humanities major at Yale I studied a lot of literature and philosophy and 
of course, working with the Sustainable Food Project and and working with other other sort of food related organizations, I had this background in in food systems and in sort of a basic understanding of of sustainability uh, and good food. But I I wasn't a chef, so that wasn't sort of the expertise that I ever conceived of bringing to the table. But something that I was very impelled to bring that I felt from the beginning, I was like, man, this is cool. I really want to go here. And I feel like I could contribute this was about finding ways to document the work that was happening and finding ways to share that work more broadly in a more comprehensive way, in a more um, multimodal way, I suppose. Uh, And just trying to like really bring that knowledge, make that knowledge more, make sure that knowledge was being preserved as it was happening and also making sure that knowledge was sort of getting out more. And so that was uh, what I sort of was able to offer, I, sa- I suppose, to Renee. Um, but that wouldn't, I wouldn't have felt that way. And I think that came out of, yes, this attraction to how playful it seemed and that they, that Renee, Renee, you know, explicitly set it up as a place that could exist in between these different worlds where it could welcome chefs, it could welcome scientists, it could welcome academics. And actually the people who were, who would be best suited to be there were people who might not be an expert in any one of those things, but sort of could try and cross, continually navigate those relationships and sort of dabble. Um, Yeah. Could you talk a little bit then about how you in particular and then the team at large navigates this weird liminal territory between chefs who aren't really academics and academics who aren't really <laughs> chefs and adventurers who aren't really any of Anything, the above. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, I mean, it's, it's really funny. Um, my One of my old colleagues, he, he used to say, you know, whenever I talk with chefs, they all think I'm a scientist. And whenever I talk with scientists, they all think, think I'm a chef. And I'm not either of them. Uh, I'm sort of a little bit of, of all of them. And it's one of these things where it's it's a challenge and a necessity. Um, the type of work that we try and do, we need to be able to have not just these different people with different sets of expertise, but also people who are able to fit that into the larger context. You know, a chef who's able to say, I have an intuition about this ingredient or this technique that it can taste really good, but that's not enough. I want to be able to understand what's going on a bit more so I can share that knowledge more clearly, so I can share that knowledge more simply. Similarly, you know, if a flavor chemist or a microbiologist comes and says, I can tell you all of the different volatile compounds that create this flavor, or I can tell you exactly what the microbial ecology of this fermentation is at this stage and at this stage and at this stage, that's really cool and necessary, but it's not enough because they also have to have an interest in, does this thing taste good? Can this be applied in a kitchen? Can this, can this, thing, whether it's a product or a technique, make someone interact with their edible world in a different way, in a new way. So regardless of what someone's expertise is or their discipline or their profession, the most important thing actually is that they have this larger, this bigger picture, this ability to situate what their expertise is in the larger context of the work that we're, what, what our vision is essentially for, for the work that we're doing. Um, 
So you mentioned you did a good amount of your undergraduate coursework in things like literature and philosophy. Mm. How do you see that training is playing out in your approaches to food or into your approaches to changing food systems and to describing deliciousness? Yeah, I'm asked this question a lot when, you know, people, when I go around different places giving talks or welcoming people at the lab and they're like, oh, so like, how did you get into this? What's your background? I'm like, yeah, I studied literature and philosophy. <laughs> and they're like, why is that relevant? And I firmly feel, it's not just a belief. I like see it happening every day at my work that the things that I gained in my education, I use every day because the work that we do largely comes down to being able to ask good questions. Whether that's a good research question to start a project, whether it's trying to develop a hypothesis, whether it's tasting something and saying, what is missing from this? What could be better about this? Is this delicious, but is it delicious enough yet? Can it be more delicious? Can we find a way of making it more complex or more particular? Um, and how you go about answering those questions is where you need the expertise of people. But it's not just enough to have these expertises. You also have to know how to coordinate them with each other and how to put them in dialogue with each other, which again goes back to asking questions. So I, and this is even before we get to the more sort of concrete disciplinary uh, applications of being able to read a text, being able to write things, being able to like engage in discourse. Like those are of course also skills that I use every day at the lab. But the primary, the primary thing I think is this ability to engage with uh, something, whether it's a text or a raw material that we get in that we don't know where to start on or a dish or someone's ongoing research and being able to, being able to identify how to move forward with that, which for me is a process of asking good questions and trying to develop good questions. Yeah, I, I think, too, one of the things I noticed on the blog, there is such just a wide mix of ways of communicating, you know, what yeah. exactly you're doing at the Nordic Food Lab. But one component that stuck out to me the most was the pictures, these pictures of, you know, like beautiful larva ceviches mm -hmm. or whatnot. And one of the components of right this pict pictorial display is family dinners. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the yeah, Nordic sure. Food Labs, family dinners, and then more broadly, how visual representations of your work work alongside or work in conversation with your other forms of communication, whether that's recipes or, you know, travel logs. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the first question first. Um, so we, we cook staff meal every day. We have it for lunch usually because we tend to work. Um, we don't have service, so we don't work. We work from nine to, I mean, officially five, but usually it's a bit later, like seven or eight or something, depending on what, what's happening at that time. Um, and so we make lunch together and that's a really important part of the day uh, to have this time where we all sit down together. We all sort of informally and formally talk about the different research projects we have going, how they can interact, how people can sort of start collaborating and connecting the dots with their research. Um, and also just to enjoy food together because that's what it's ultimately about. You know, we can spend hours agonizing over uh, one particular recipe or technique or trying to be super, uh, trying to develop really complex experimental designs. But 
at the end of the day, it's about trying to create that conviviality, that sense of enjoying something in yourself and enjoying it together and nourishing each other. So that's a big, that's an important part of our work. Um, and we started to realize that that actually could also be one of our research outputs because a lot of the time we're taking things that we're developing as experiments and then testing them out in our staff lunch um, to try and find ways that they can be implemented into cooking in sort of a more home cooking style thing, which goes back to your earlier question about what actually can be the applicability of these things for the person who's making food to sustain their family or making food just on a daily basis. And that is where the idea was sort of born to start um, start like a sub blog of our website where we uh, took a picture and gave a brief description of that day's family meal. Um, and that sort of turned into a really popular thing. You know, we get a lot of people who we meet or who contact us saying, hey, like, I love what you're doing. I really love the, the NFL staff lunch blog. Like, it gives me so much inspiration. And it's so minimal effort on our part, you know, because we're already cooking the meal. We just snap a photo and then uh, one, of our, one of our interns sort of just uploads it. Um, and it's a fantastic way of demonstrating, yeah, this idea that a lot of the things that we're working with maybe we're oriented we're oriented towards the um, sort of the frontier of cooking, um, people who are cooking at, the, at a high level, but at the same time, the same things can be applied in a home kitchen. Um, and trying to sort of show that rather than tell that is really important. And that idea goes back to our use of, of other forms of representation in general. Um, I, I openly acknowledge my textual bias I, I really like language. I love words. I study literature, as I mentioned. And so I'm really concerned with trying to make sure that all of the, con all of the written content that the lab puts out is of a certain uh, quality and, and is, is, is precise to a certain degree. But, uh, and this is where it goes back to the, the interesting challenge of, of working with so many different types of people cooks and producers and academics and all these different people is that other people learn and take up knowledge in really different ways and there is a large part of the community of, of chefs and cooks and kitchens who much prefer interacting with video or with photos or with audio rather than reading some sort of treatise on why a fermentation works the way it does you know that <laughs> Just because we're able to write something that we're satisfied with doesn't mean that it's actually getting to the people who want that knowledge in the best way. So we have been experimenting in the past with doing, with sort of um, recording podcasts of talks, creating short videos. Of course, taking photos is a huge part of our work. We are constantly taking photos of everything. It's actually a huge problem. We have an, an inordinate amount of photos and I'm in the process of trying to create a structure for having them be useful because you can take a photo, but if you don't know where it is, then it may as well not exist. Um, but that's a big part of our work for sure. But increasingly, not just photos, but all of these other types of media and multimedia, um, I think will help us reach our audiences better and also will and have had a feedback loop that allows us to do our research better because all of a sudden when we're doing the research we're asking you know how what's actually the best medium to represent this this research in maybe it is in an academic paper 
but maybe it's not. Maybe it's in a short film. Maybe it's in doing a workshop with people in the flesh. Um, and different types of research sort of are, are, are better suited to different types of media. And that's also a, a big interest that we have is sort of trying to figure out not just what the best way is to conduct the research, but also what is the best way to share it. Right. So as, as a part of your job, and I think as a part of the Nordic Food Lab, you do do a lot of field research and a lot of travel. And you just came from Peru. Could you yeah. tell us a, a little bit about what's interesting going down <laughs> in Peru? Yeah. Um, well, so I, um, as part of this insect, insect research project, which I'm managing, um, we've been doing a lot of field work over the last year, particularly. Um, and the goal of that is to go to cultures where insects are a delicacy, where they aren't just eaten, but where they are eaten and loved and celebrated. Because these are the places that hold the rich culinary knowledge of how to prepare them and how to turn them into the delicacies that they are valued f as. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of learning in that regard, and we're really grateful to everybody in the field who has shared all of their knowledge with us and continues to share and inspire us in that. Um, I, I just came from Lima um, over the weekend, but I actually wasn't there for field work. I was there to give a talk um, at a big food festival called Mistura, which was fantastic. But we were in Peru uh, in April, at the end of March and early April, doing field work. And I mean, I don't even... I don't even know where to start. Like, what do you, <laughs> what do you want to know? Like what our method is or like what, uh, like why do it? Or I guess I sort of briefly touched on like why we're doing it for the insects. Cause yeah. it's, it's something that we, you know, we as uh, quote unquote Westerners, um, we, we tell ourselves that we're sort of one of the few group of cultures in the world that don't have a tradition of eating insects. Um, which to a certain extent is true in recent history, but if you go far enough back, that's not the case anymore. Um, it's just that, like many other things, we've forgotten about them uh, rather than that we never ate them at all. Um, but because I don't have this embodied knowledge, I didn't grow up eating them really. I, I don't have a... Um, I'm starting to develop an intuition surrounding them as a set of ingredients, but I didn't... I didn't. I don't have that as part of my life um, before I was at the lab. So that's where the fieldwork is really necessary: is to try and learn all of these different culinary techniques that we can take back, but also to try and gain that that more tacit, embodied type of knowledge. Which, which, the more we're able to expose ourselves to it and try and develop in ourselves and cultivate, the more that can come out in our cooking when we're actually back at the lab. Um, trying to make sense of these techniques based on the, based on the species that we have available to us. Um, and that taste, you know, that, that taste for delicious things. It goes back to this, you know, if we can have a hunch or have an intuition that something has potential to be delicious if it's elaborated in a certain way, if it's processed or has a certain technique applied to it in a certain way. Um, but the starting point for that has to be just, exposure eating things that other people have made that 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 puts them into a context that, that gives them a life that gives them significance and so that's that's why we have to do the field work 
All right. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this interview today, Josh. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.